Well, we took a couple of weeks out to, to talk to you about generosity and giving uh, out of the series that we, we've been doing uh, as elders with you guys just to talk about uh, our values. And uh, hopefully it's getting easier for you to remember the three core elements of that, which is presence, honor, and legacy. Yeah, because we do that again, presence... Legacy, that's what we're about. If you want to know what kind of a place we're seeking to be, it's something that's full of those qualities and characteristics. Presence, honor, and legacy. And we're, we're still really, so we're returning to that theme and we're still really in the subject of presence. And you've already heard about joy as a topic in that and the kingdom of God. And uh, we have a couple of other things to do <coughs> That our values that, that, that hold up, sustain, express that value for presence. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about one of those things. And, and the, our elders team particularly asked me to do this one, so I'm going to do the best job I can. So I'm actually going to pray again because I'm doing something a bit different and I'm slightly nervous. So can you pray for me at the same time? Let's let's kind of join in this journey together as we go on to this one. So Father, uh, thanks for your amazing, amazing uh, presence this morning, what you're showing us, what you're doing with us and to us. And uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would just meet with us powerfully today and, and, and deepen our understanding of you, deepen our encounter with you, deepen our enjoyment of you and who you are. And uh, P.S., help would be appreciated. <laughs> Amen. So just to <clears throat> I'm going to try and take your mind back, it was November 2015, we took a team to Paris, uh, we were Dorna de Silva, some of us went to the church, we have a connection there and uh, we, were, uh, we were starting a conference on the weekend and there was this uh, terrible terrorist atrocity that happened in the, the football stadium and the Bataclan and, and the bars. And, and just, just imagine for a moment that you, you had gone to, and now I know this is very unlikely for some of you, but just go with it for a moment. You had gone to watch Eagles of Death Metal concert <laughs> in the Bataclan in November 2015. And then you are on the bands playing and you're slowly being, being deafened by choice. <laughs> and then some other s- noises start to happen and people are getting shot. Some guys are walking in with bombs strapped to their bodies and, and somehow you f- find a place to hide but what you see around you is people being shot. Maybe some of the mates that you came in with, you're, you're watching them bleed out on the floor in front of you and you see that if something doesn't happen soon, probably everybody in that building is going to be dead before long. Um, And from your temporary secure hiding place, I imagine whether you're a believer or an atheist, you're probably praying. And you're probably praying, you know, if there is a God, get us out of this. And you're maybe also praying... I hope the police arrive soon. At that moment, you hear the, the sound. You hear the sirens. You hear them getting closer and closer. 
I just want, if that's you, just, just for a minute, imagine yourself in that spot. You're, you're, you're going to be feeling pretty scared. You're going to be, it's, it's, it's traumatizing. It's awful. But at that moment, as those sirens get closer, what are you hoping comes through that door? What are you hoping? The police, the gendarmes, what, what, the special forces, what are you hoping? That, are you hoping that they're going to come through and be all conciliatory with these guys and say, hey, you've obviously got a problem here. Why don't we have a conversation? We're just going to wave a few flags. We love you, really. Um, we just want to... Are you hoping for that? Are you, are you hoping for... You know, the best equipped pea shooters that money can buy the French police. As more and more people are being shot, this didn't, there's no, there's no pause button in this video. This calamity, this atrocity is just continuing to happen around. Are, are, you, are you hoping that they'll be like good old British bobbies with their helmets and a rubber truncheon coming to take on the ISIL? Is that what you're hoping for? You're hoping they show up with guns, are you not? You're hoping they show up with guns, hopefully better ones than the people that are shooting your friends. You're looking at me like, no, we'd want them to be in there kind of with pea shooters. No. You're in that spot. Maybe you even dialed for the police. You want them to show up. And in the event, they did show up, and they did show up with guns, and they shot some of the people that were shooting your friends. Who's the bad guy? Who is the author of evil in this scenario? This really happened. There are a lot of dead people because this really happened and there could have been more dead people if the wonderful French police hadn't showed up too sweet and shot some of them. Who's, who's the baddie here? Is the policeman shooting the terrorist murder or justice? We live in a world that's full of crazy, crazy stuff. Do we not? And some evil gets to the point where you can't negotiate with it. Yeah. Hitler was like that. Nobody knew what he was doing till after the fact. But somebody had the sense to stand up to the bully. 
And he was a big bully. He had bigger tanks, bigger guns, better technology than everybody at the time. But he was murdering millions of Jews. And nobody knew, but somebody sussed him out. And his name was Churchill. Most of the nation wanted appeasement and other politicians. I believe that keeping evil in check is an expression of goodness. Would you turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 13 and start verse 1 to 7. Let's read it together. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Just let that one sink in for a moment. Uh, most people don't live as that is the truth, but that is the truth. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your what? Just, just, just if you would say it together. He is your God's servant for your... Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom it is owed. Huh. I missed a bit out, doesn't he? For he is God's servant for your God, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Verse 4 For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoing. Now, this scripture is saying that God's given this kind of, let's call it for now, civil authority to rulers and governors for our good. And the primary role of that is to protect us from outrageous evil when it gets momentum and gets on the run. So, God has actually authorized rulers to use the sword now that would be culturally relevant then today it may be the gun or the tank or yes all right but God authorized them to use those means to actually carry out and avenge God's wrath on wrongdoing A lot of you have been doing the Bible read-through. Isn't the Old Testament a nightmare? <laughs> My goodness. There's a lot of blood and killing and death and some of it put at God's door, right? And you read through it and I've looked, 
you know, followed it and looked at the Facebook posts that are like, oh, well, it's really doing people's heads in this goodness of God stuff. God's good. But one of the ways that he's good is that he actually has boundaries and he prevents evil taking over. And his primary way to do it is through delegation to rulers. So, you know, so thank God for the British and the Americans and the allies of World War II banded together and stood against Hitler and the lives that were lost and the, the brutality that we experienced. But thank God. What kind of a world would we even live in if they hadn't used the sword God had given them to stand against oppression, injustice, murder, genocide? That's the goodness of God in action. And we're sitting in the benefits of the goodness of God being exercised by people who are willing to pay a price a generation or two before us. And through the Bible you see, you see God doesn't run the planet like we should run the church. He's dealing with millions of people, a lot of whom don't believe in him. A lot of whom actually get to the point where they think that what is evil is actually good. And so how you govern a nation and how you govern a planet is quite different to how elders lead a church. All right, so we are not standing here saying as elders we have been given the sword because that isn't actually the role. We're, we're the shepherds of the sheep. We, we hold the gate open. We're not here lopping people's ears off. But there is a place of authority that needs to exist in a fallen world where evil gets rampant and crazy and starts to take over and that civil authority that is delegated from God is there to keep the crazies in control. Because some of them can't be negotiated with. These, I saw people like that. Hitler was like that. There's tons of them around the place and they don't want a discussion. Do you see? Some of the stories you read in the Old Testament, they're not, the Old Testament is basically a lot of bad news. But it's bad news because it's getting ready and desperate for the good news. And it's bad news because it's about a world in which humanity made a choice to not believe God and to go its own way and it all starts to unravel. And so in that you have this story of death and destruction and a horror and it's ugly. Wrongdoing needs to be kept in check. Evil breeds evil. It gains its own momentum. One of the geniuses of the, the way that God inspired the Bible writers, all these 66 books and all these different authors inspired by the one Holy Spirit was actually to get us to the end of the Old Testament going absolutely gagging for an answer. 
And there are examples in the New Testament of God exercising directly this kind of authority when things are getting out of hand. So a New Testament example would be Herod, who had laid violent hands on the church. He killed James, the brother of John, who was one of the disciples close to Jesus. This is Acts 12, 23. And then he's getting all proud and arrogant and pontificating, and it says an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. I always like that verse because it sounds like he's getting eaten by worms before he died rather than afterwards, which the way the guy was behaving has a certain justice about the process. But the, the, the point is God sent the angel to kill the guy. It wasn't murder. It was justice. It was keeping evil in check so that the goodness could get worked out. God's protecting his purpose in history. He's, he's bringing an answer to fulfillment after man screwed it up in the garden. Everything God made was good and in the end he said he made humanity and he said it was very good and he put us in a garden, Eden, paradise. Everything he did was without fault, was without error, was without evil, was pure. But in order for the scenario to be one where love was real and not robotic, I mean, God could have made people who just did stuff for him, just like birds fly south in the summer. I don't think they go, hmm, I'm not sure I feel like it this year. There's a thing inside them that's where they're made, that's what they do. He could have made, but then that wouldn't have been real love. It was just programming. So he made a choice. He gave the opportunity in this perfect environment. There was a choice. And remember, these are not sinful people. These are people who are good, made in his image, but they make a choice. And they make a choice to listen to the serpent, to the evil one, and not to God. And basically the evil one is saying, God is telling you a lie. He is bad. And ever since the fall Humanity is sought to make God the villain. The, the unapproachable one who is the author of bad things. And it justifies our stance of alienation to him. But in the garden, who, who was doing the hiding? In the Garden of Eden, who's doing the hiding? God wasn't hiding from man. Man was hiding from God. God showed up on time as for his usual walk with Adam. Adam is not present. Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes because of their shame at their nakedness. And their disobedience and their sin caused the fall and caused shame to enter humanity as an epidemic. And shame separates you, even from the ones that love you. God showed up for his usual walk. God showed up, I'm sure, because he's God aware of what went on, but he wasn't repulsed by them. They were in their shame running away from him. 
and the rest really is history, is man trying to put the blame on God for the bad things when actually he was the one that started the problem. God is not the villain. He's not the villain today. He wasn't the villain then. He never will be the villain. God is good. And he wants to do you good. And he wants you to find out that he is good. Adam's shame meant he couldn't cope with God or the presence of God. It wasn't that God couldn't cope with him. If that was true, Jesus could have never come in the flesh. If God couldn't cope with disobedient, fallen human flesh, Jesus could never exist because God, 100% divine and holy, came to live in a 100% human body and walked the earth for 33 and a bit years with no problem that we know about anyway in terms of the two natures existing, coexistence, inner unity and a wholeness in Jesus. So the fullness of deity lives in bodily form in Christ. Do you see? Man's problem was not as big a problem to God as the man was making it out to be. What was driving the separation was the man and the woman's shame, not God's rejection of them. And in their shame, they reject him. He's not rejecting them. In the garden, the enemy recruits them to his view that God is the villain. And if there's any of that inside of us, God is in the business of loving it out of us. God as bad is a human defense, a projection of our problem onto him, not a real experience of his heart for us. And you read the Old Testament, it's full of the outcomes, and it's ugly, and it's horrible, and it's disastrous, and it's heartrending, and, it, and in the midst of it, you see God trying to express something, but it's difficult to see. So give us, give us a verse, Andy, I can give you quite a lot of verses, but... The issue is the darkness in our understanding, not in the nature of God. Yes. I'll read you, read you scripture, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 says that we are alienated from him because of the darkened understanding that we moved into. And we moved into it when we agreed with the devil in the garden rather than with the father. Do you see? We believed a lie and that darkened our understanding and that darkened understanding, the scripture says, alienates us from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardness of our heart. And what's happening in the world today is just what we were experiencing in worship this morning. The good father is showing up and he's cracking open our understanding to see him in the glorious nature of who he really, really is. He's removing the ignorance 
and giving us this thing called a revelation. And some of us think, well, when we become a Christian, we're no longer darkened in our understanding. Well, to some degree that's true, but there's still a process of the renewal of the mind, and we inherit a lot of unhelpful and unhealthy thinking from our upbringing and from our environment. And part of what we're doing as a community by lifting up this thing of presence, by lifting up the goodness of God as a, as a value and a heartbeat is that we can see and feel and taste and read in the scripture the fact that God is good. And that starts to push out this alienation because our understanding starts to shift. Sozo is about that. It's about encountering a good father and a good Jesus and a good Holy Spirit. And in that encounter, shifts happening in people's thinking and experience so that they walk out the door in intimacy, increased intimacy with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The root of atheism is believing, not actually, it comes to the point of this, where the atheist ideology is simply this if God is good and is all powerful then there shouldn't be all these horrible things in the world because if there's all these horrible things and he was good then he would do something about it the fact that he's not doing something about it says that he isn't there or he isn't all powerful and actually What's happening with this revelation of the goodness of the Father is God is delivering the church from atheism. Well, he didn't fix that problem. He didn't fix that problem. How can he be good or how can he be powerful? That's, that's atheistic in its origins. So people get bitter with God. You know, it's impossible to, believe, to construct or prove something isn't there go off on that one now if he is evil at all if he is unreliable capricious prone to insecurity and random exercises of infinite power then stay away If he's prone to telling you a lie that actually you're not really made in his image, that, you, that, that if you eat from this thing, it's not really going to do you harm. Actually, it's going to do you good. If he's prone to spinning you a few lies and spinning you a few half-truths just to keep you on side, stay away. He is dangerous because he has all the power and he's deluding you. That's what the devil was doing in the garden. Everything God says about your identity is the truth. Whether you feel it, believe it, have seen it in your life, makes no difference. The truth is what he says. Because he made you. He designed you. You were his aforethought. Before anything else, he loved you, imagined you, and then he created you. And he loves you, he likes you, and he gave everything for you. Who you are and who you, he says you and I are is who we really are. Everything else is a lie. Everything else is a twist. Everything else is a facsimile. <laughs> a few years ago, we used to do... Um, fireworks parties as a church and everybody would show up, probably too many of us now, we'd show up at the Treadgold's house and then go down to the field and spend rather a lot of money on a lot of fireworks. 
watched a few guys would run around lighting, have fun, and then we'd eat hot dogs and have soup, and it was all great fun. And one year we were doing this, and we were all, a crowd of us were in the Nick's front, Nick and Jan's front garden, and some teenagers down the hill let off some fireworks, and they shot a rocket horizontally into our crowd of a lot of little kids and all this. Honestly, you know, Nick Treadgold, what a dad, hey? Calm, loving, gentle man, patient. Amen. Those of you who know him, you know it's true. In that moment, something else got revealed. Something else got revealed. And this giant of a man roared down the street. And this is how I remember it. And he roared down the street and he got in amongst these teenagers and he tore them off a strip. And they were kind of skulking away. And I'm like, that's a good dad in action. See, there's goodness in wrath. You can't have goodness without passion. You can't have goodness without justice. You can't have goodness without some power to deal with what is evil. Otherwise, you just get, you get chaos. You get confusion about what is good and evil. You get the evil infiltrating the good. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of Nick Treadgold. It's a slight misquote from Hebrews 12. That's what the Bible says about God, isn't it? It's like it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of God. That's because that's what he likes. He loves us passionately, loves us tenderly, loves us enduringly, loves us profoundly and profusely. Oh, but my goodness, you mess with his kids. He's passionate about righting wrongs. He's passionate about the broken. He's passionate about the oppressed. He's passionate about redeeming the people who are dealing with such abuse in their lives. God really cares to the point of doing something. That wrath and justice, goodness is meaningless. Evil is tolerated to the point it appears acceptable. Goodness is meaningless. Because what you tolerate dominates. Now how God exercises and when he exercises his goodness in this way is not for something for us to sit in judgment over. And as a culture, we are terrible, I'm talking generally, at judging God and you know, reading about God or hearing about God and kind of stroking our wise beards thinking we really know what he should have done. I would suggest that's bad habit. Let's, let's, if we're doing that, let's stop that. There's certain things it's difficult to understand. Let's, let's love the mystery. The Bible tells us that he's shown us what we need to know. But let's not sit in judgment over the king. He is the Lord, we are not. Now our culture believes we are. Our culture is very individualistic, self-actualizing. It's very much, I am the boss, my truth is the truth, at least for me. Your truth is your truth for you. But this is not the culture of the kingdom of heaven. The truth is him. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we are all on the journey of discovering and being revealed to us the absolute truth of his real nature. We have to submit to his revelation, his self-revelation to us of who he is. What we don't know, we don't know. Let's not make it up. I believe profoundly that the goodness of God is a New Testament revelation. That's why it's called the gospel. The Old Testament is not called the gospel. Gospel means good news. So if you're on the Bible read-through, you get to the point, I was talking to Phil the other day, it was like, here we got to Isaiah 53, we were, we were absolutely desperate for something to happen. Then you start to read about the suffering servant. It's telling us the stage is set. The world needs a savior because we can't do it. So the goodness of God is a, is a New Testament revelation. The Old Testament builds and builds its sorry tale. And it's so convincing that even the best Old Testament scholars of Jesus' day didn't expect Jesus. Jesus was left field. Jesus was weird. Jesus was out of the box. In fact, he wasn't in any box they thought existed. Jesus. So these people poured their lives into memorizing, studying all of the Torah, all of the Old Covenant, and Jesus shows up. They really struggled to find him, the one they were seeing, in the things that they learned. Isn't that interesting? So the people that knew the book the best couldn't spot the guy they were supposed to spot. Because it's actually not that obvious if you just read the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus took a walk. He just died and had actually been raised from the dead. But it was just a rumor at this point. Some of the women had been to the tomb. And Jesus appears to two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And it says that he walked alongside them and started, they didn't recognize him, which is interesting. And in itself, well, we won't go there. But he's talking to them. And as he's talking to them, he's showing them in Scripture, which is the Old Covenant, he's having to reveal to them everything it said about him. You can't get it on your own. The Old Covenant is types and shadows. It's in there, but it's hidden. The new is Jesus on display. It's God's goodness revealed for all to see. The Old Testament doesn't give an accurate picture of the Lord's true nature and heart. Otherwise, they would have understood. Virtually no one got what God was up to in Jesus Christ. Even his disciples who were in for three and a half years didn't get it. You can see from the accounts. They were, they were clueless. They just had moments of clarity like Peter said, you're the Christ. And then he, Jesus even says, well, you didn't learn that in seminary. That was revealed to you by my Father. To get this requires not just the book, but the author of the book to be active in your heart and mind. This is not against the book. You need the book. Only in relationship with Jesus is it a satisfying story. Only in relationship with Jesus do we start to see the whole context of the unfolding of God's incredible purpose for planet Earth and every soul that ever lived. <clears throat> so 
says of Jesus that he is the exact representation of God. That all the fullness of deity lived in him in bodily form. And, and Andy, can I borrow you a second? Andy's going to be Jesus just briefly for... Uh, it's easy to believe. You have to stand in front of me, Andy. Okay. This is Jesus, okay? And, and I'm God. All right, I know. Just, just, just kind of... Just trying to get the thing going here. Okay, I'm just... So here's Jesus walking the earth, fullness of deity in bodily form, the exact representation of God. That means that there's nothing needs to be added for you to see God better, and nothing needs to be taken out for you to see God better. Everything that is to be seen about me is him. There's not a slightly scary, weird other God going to appear from behind Jesus and go, Ah, I fooled you. Thanks. Did well. <laughs> Jesus is God. Jesus is him fully realized, fully de- demonstrated, both in attitude, action, works, and words. Do you see? Everything else has to be read through him. He is the author. He is the finisher. He is the one who made it all, and he is the one who's going to wrap it all up. He is the truth. And what did he come to do? He said, I came to show you the Father. He's so good. Let me, let me just read you something from the message. It's Romans 8.3. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote or unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity, in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. Did you hear that? God sent his son, and he personally took on the human condition. He entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. He's good. Good to the point of self-sacrifice. Good to the point of coming and living and dwelling amongst the mess that we made in order to fix the mess that we made. Jesus. I don't know, but you, this makes me want to just worship all his fullness. Got inside a human body and all that brokenness to come, to live, to die, to suffer, to rise again from the dead, to fix the mess that humanity made. The solution began 2,000 or so years ago at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we live in that momentum. We live in what he began. He didn't do it by invading every single situation. He did it by invading people who chose to believe in him. And they start to become the solution. 
They're the seed, the sons of the kingdom. They're the leaven. They're the light of the world. There's the goodness of God in all the earth's story, I believe. History is really his story if you can see it. But you need Jesus walking you down the road to see it. Don't, don't, don't call God bad. Don't judge his actions. Don't blame him. And we have a wonderful opportunity both to receive that truth and to give it away. So I believe that we can see the goodness of God in all of earth history and we will see it ultimately consummated at the return of Jesus and all things will be made completely new in heaven and on the earth. And that's already actually been achieved with the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not possible, it's not a maybe, it's already done. It's just waiting for the moment of appropriate rollout. There's no more work to do. All the heavy lifting happened at the resurrection. So the world is aching for good news. There is a great sadness in our world. And we have been given the job to make it happy again. And one of the ways we can do that is by not getting infected and infiltrated by the great sadness. And the great sadness's origin is actually making God the bad, bad guy. As soon as you do that, you're on the slippery slope to gloom and hopelessness. But we are here for the glory of God. Is that not true? Most Christians are oh, here for the glory of God. I want God to be glorified through my life. Is that true of you? Yeah, we are, we are. We want the glorious church. We want to live a glorious life. We want to live like Jesus. That's inside of us now. Once he's in you, that's, that's true north for us. We want to be like him. And so how, how, just to sort of finish up, how do we do this? Well, our job is to display his glory and just remind you when, when Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord, what, what happened? What happened was that God made all his goodness pass before him. That's exciting, isn't it? So that means that when you see God's goodness, you're seeing his glory. When he does something good and it comes from his heart and heaven, actually the good activity of our Father is a display of his glory. Wow. I like that. It's the truth as well. So Moses sees all the goodness of God. And then it says of Jesus... Summary verse of his life, Acts 10, 38, that he went around doing good. In fact, one of his miracles where he changed the water into wine, it says, through this he revealed his glory by making shed loads of wine. God showed his glory. I mean, I'll be off on the wine thing here, I know, but God showed his glory by making wine from water. How about that for good news? Anyway, back to the subject here. The, God shows his glory. I mean, there's just 
It's extraordinary, isn't it? I get so excited about that. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went around doing good. How did he do good? He says, and healing all the repressed of the devil. Goodness looks like glory. Goodness. Yeah? All right, follow, follow me here. He showed the glory. The glory was his goodness. When Jesus walked the earth, his goodness was displayed through healing all the repressed of the devil. What's happening is glory is being shown through the great and mighty acts of healing and deliverance that Jesus did. He's the exact representation of God. We got that point earlier on, didn't we? He is, he, there's nothing different to God than Jesus isn't different to God in any shape or form or measure. So he's going around. And the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel. So we have four gospels telling us about Jesus who is exactly God. One half of the gospels is about healing signs and wonders. One half. A third if you just do the synoptics, but still a lot. A really a lot. How's God showing his goodness to the earth? Yes, he's doing good, but what kind of good? Come on, what kind of good? He's healing people. And it's freaking them out. The Old Testament tells you that God made people blind. Jesus came to give sight to the blind. It's messing them up. Is it possible that if one half of Jesus' life was healing signs and wonders and we are trying to be like Jesus and he lives inside of us that we get to the place that one half of our lives is healing signs and wonders? Just positing that. See, the church has believed that we're going to be like Jesus in our character. So, you know, I'm going to be more holy. I'm going to be more patient, especially with the kids. I'm going to be, I'm going to be more loving. I'm going to be more, more all, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But actually... What about the stuff he spent half his time doing? Oh, well, that's not for me. Why is it not for us? Who told you? Well, I don't feel like it. Okay. Let's think about that idea then. <laughs> Who lives in you? Few of you? Fewer of you are willing to admit that now you heard this bit. <laughs> What did Jesus spend half of his life doing? Who lives in you? Is he the same yesterday, today and forever? This half of the room says yes, this half of the room is non-committal, I wonder why. Listen guys, this is a process for us all to line up with who we are in him and who he is in us because his glory will be seen in the earth and how it's going to happen is that his goodness is being displayed by not just good deeds of helping grannies to cross roads, but by healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, turning water into wine, please Lord, walking on water, walking through walls, who knows, and many other things that we can't imagine, cancers healed, all the rest of it, that's how good he is. And he wants to be good to you, but also good through you, because the world is sad, and you have the answer. We have the answer. 
because we're in touch with a good daddy and he loves us. I mean, he's like passionately about, passionately crazy about you all the time. You're like, well, this week, I mean, this week was such a bad week. I just had all these terrible thoughts and just, you know, I, I kicked the cat and swore at the children and I even, I even, I even had a row with the wife. He's passionately in love with you, is Jesus. The Father just wants to do you good. He's proud of you. Well, proud of me. I didn't have a very prideful week. He's proud of you. God's good. His motives are good. His thoughts are good. His actions are good. And his goodness looks like spiritual things. It looks like natural things. Did I say wine? It looks like wine. It looks like healing. It looks like provision. All you guys who just put money amazingly, sacrificially in the offering, guess what? He is on his heavenly charger coming to your bank account with a way of blessing your finances, giving you a promotion, helping you find money in the street. Amazing God is out to bless you. And for those of you who didn't put anything, he's out to bless you this week. With no agenda, no manipulation. This week he wants to give you a promotion, pay off your debt. Because he's good. And it looks like good things. Relationally good. Financially good. Good, good, good. Let's stand. I think I just preached the good news. And I do get stirred up. And I've actually learned recently. I just need to be me. Which is I'm passionate. You are free to think. We want you to think but I'm also free to be excited about what, what God is saying. Is that okay? Can we, yes. Is that a deal? Right, Father, we love you. Uh, we don't always understand you. Uh, you are a mystery in many ways to us. Uh, we read scripture and we think, duh, why did you give it us like this, God? Um, but we know that you help us, that you walk with us like you walk with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Would you stir our hearts? You said of that story that their hearts burn within them as he explained the stuff to them. Would our hearts burn within us as you show us your goodness, God? What is written of you through all of Scripture and all of history and all of eternity is that you are outstandingly good, that you have a family on the earth and you've redeemed it and wedded us to yourself. Father God, I'm sorry, I thought you were the problem. Can you, can you just do that with me? I'm sorry I blamed you when you weren't to blame. I'm sorry I made you the bad guy. I thank you that you protect me. I thank you that you are determined to stand against the horrors of evil. You are, you are not the villain, and I repent of making you the villain and I just ask you to show me, in, it, in place of that, how incredibly good you are and how for me you are, how you celebrate me, how you love me, how you're backing me with all of your heart and your resources.